0: This is the audio from a recent Institute for Economic Affairs YouTube video. We've stripped the audio so that you can listen on the go.
1: Inequality measures are are, are, um, notoriously unreliable. That Oxfam ought to be working with business. It's business that ultimately generates the things which Oxfam have to redistribute, the food, the water, uh, the, the you know the, the, the chemicals the, the pharmaceuticals and so forth if you then deregulate you're letting in competition so often the, the defenders of regulation are actually incumbent firms
0: hello and welcome to the IA YouTube channel my name is Reem Ibrahim and I'm the communications officer and Linda Watson scholar here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Oxfam have recently published their report, Inequality Inc. How Corporate Power Divides Our World and the Need for a New Era of Public Action. So, in order to solve global inequality, Oxfam's recommendations include a 60% tax on income from stocks and shares, global minimum wealth tax, permanent taxation of excess profits, a permanent taxation on global minimum corporation tax at least 25%, and the nationalisation of energy, transport, health, and education. So, to discuss Oxfam's report, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Len Shackleton. Len is a Professor of Economics at the University of Buckingham, and he is also the IEA's Editorial and Research Fellow. Len, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, So, first of all, can we talk a little bit about the sort of background behind this report? I know you've written about it before. What is it? What you know? What what is a series of report that Oxfam actually publishes?
1: Okay, well, the, the uh, these reports are published as a counterpoint to the uh, Davos uh, World Economic Forum, which is held every year in January, um, and each year they 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 write about they, they write about uh, the issue of inequality in the world and uh, the way in which we ought to uh, confront this by radical changes in the way in which we organise society. And they've been doing this now since, and I'm not quite sure when this started, but I first wrote about it, I think, in 2014, so that's uh, 10 years ago. Um, and each year they they produce a, a kind of new wrinkle on it. Uh, during COVID, for example, it was about the inequality which COVID was, was throwing up. Um, uh, this year it's about how five uh, billionaires have hoovered up uh, huge increases in, in their wealth uh, during a period when uh, living standards may have been falling for for a lot of people.
0: That's really interesting. So it's sort'll we'll talk about the way which inequality has worsened. There's even, I think, a foreword by Bernie Sanders in this report this year. And the main focus is this idea that inequality has worsened. Is this true?
1: Well, inequality measures are, are, are um, notoriously unreliable. They fluctuate a great deal. Um, when they focus on wealth, of course, this is a, a rather misleading thing because uh, wealth is a, a will of the wisp. Uh, you, you know, wealth uh, is really people's uh, or the market's valuation of future earnings. And so when they say a company is worth X billion pounds, uh, that's because people think that it's going to be producing flows and income in the future. And, of course, when something changes to, to, to alter that expectation, then the wealth plummets. And, I mean, the classic example of this, which uh, is worth quoting, I think, is Elon Musk, who, uh, you know, when he took over uh, Facebook and all this sort of stuff, um, his, uh, the market's valuation of his wealth collapsed in the space of, I think, 14 months he lost $182 billion, right, because the value of his wealth fell. So wealth is a very difficult thing to measure. And uh, we don't have any, uh, any uh, even national statistics on wealth, let alone global statistics. So there's a lot of fancy methodology in here and try to make up numbers which, uh, which tell a story. And that's what Oxford is actually very good at telling stories. Uh, but sometimes these stories can be rather misleading.
0: So with the methodology and the way in which they've sort of framed this inequality, they've effectively said that the top five richest people in the world are getting richer and that within the next 20 or 30 years, there will be a trillionaire. And they talk about this as being a very, very bad thing, that it proves that the world is getting worse and that actually, you know, things are getting getting worse and actually that inequality is worsening as well. I mean, is this true and how are they sort of framing that?
1: The, the, the whole approach, really, is a, it could be described as Marxist. I'm not suggesting that the people involved are, are you know, uh, Stalinists. Or, you know, <laughs> that, that's not what I'm saying. But essentially, uh, the, their view is that um, there is, if you like, a pot of wealth. And if, uh, if, if the rich get more of it, then the poor uh, get less. A kind of a miserization um, idea. And this really does go back to sort of Marxist economics, whereas I think mainstream economics would argue that, that, that wealth isn't created by, you know, wealth has to be created by people cooperating through a market process to generate value. Uh, it's not something which you can just take a lump of something and, and give it to somebody else. Um, you know, there are elements in wealth which could be redistributed, but there'd be a rather th- difficult thing to do. Luxury yachts, for example, what would you do with them? You know, <laughs> could we all have a share of a luxury yacht in 10 minutes or something? You know, mm. um, but I say most of the wealth of, of these seriously rich people is in terms of uh, financial assets. And financial assets can, uh, as I was saying before, collapse in value. And if you try to redistribute this wealth, it just falls apart because the process which has generated the wealth uh, is undermined by massive redistribution and taking away the incentives to create wealth in the first place. So uh, it's 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 a, a very naive approach, actually. It's it's a sort of nineteenth-century approach to wealth generation, um, which I think uh, you know it does worry me. I mean, Oxfam. You know, let's be positive about Oxfam. It was created in, I think, in 1942 uh, um, in Oxford to create uh, help in famines, and it's done a terrific job over many, many decades. Uh, That's not the issue. The issue is whether the the sort of confrontational approach of a succession of Oxfam executives is actually the best approach. Now, they're they're just appointing uh, a lady called Halima Begum, who is a very well-known figure in, uh, you know, in 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 this third third sector, and uh, has also worked in government, but you know this kind of confrontational stuff. She has no experience of business whatsoever. You know, Oxfam ought to be working with business. It's business that ultimately generates mm-hmm. the things which Oxfam have to redistribute: the food, the water, uh, the the you know the the, the chemicals, the, the pharmaceuticals, and so forth uh working with business will be a much more positive approach than this you know uh, oh it's a dreadful capitalist conspiracy we've got to pull it all down and start again
0: i think it's interesting because the report highlights this idea behind corporate greed and actually that it's these large corporations one of the one of the titles in um in one of the chapters was sort of big farmer, big tech big everything and this idea that these large corporations are sort of sucking in, or in all of our wealth And I think, I mean, this comes back to a wider conversation about inequality and a wider conversation about wealth creation. How is wealth created? Is it through? Is it through governments? Is it through? Is it through corporations? Is it through trade? I mean, can we talk a little bit about how wealth is actually created in the first place?
1: Well, it's not created by by government. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, government can. It's necessary for there to be a government. Uh, and indeed, many of the countries in which uh, Oxfam operates are characterized by very poor government, very poor governance, um, you know, corruption and so forth. And one of the advantages, actually, of, of using Oxfam and other charities rather than our government directly intervening is, is that uh, charities are often better on the ground. They work on a smaller scale. They deal with people on a personal basis and so forth. So, I mean, that is a reasonable kind of uh, approach. But where the wealth comes from, uh, as I was saying before, it's about uh, providing incentives for people to generate wealth through exchange, through creating value and so on. It's not through government sort of taking things from one group of people, giving it to another and saying this improves matters. That doesn't improve Mm.
0: matters. The wealth has to be created in the first place for you to even redistribute it in in that moment as well. I think talking about this, I think, sort of zooming out a little bit about um, this wider conversation regarding inequality. Inequality itself is discussed as a sort of buzzword, and it's sort of discussed in the media in that way. Obviously, Oxfam highlighted it in in, in their report. And I mean, this sort of reminds me of, uh, I think it was one of Margaret Thatcher's pretty famous speeches, where she talks about the fact that the socialists would rather the poor be poorer so long as the rich were less rich. Why is there this aversion to wealth? Why is there this sort of this sort of idea that you know, the top five richest people becoming wealthier is a bad thing? I mean, why do we why do we talk about wealth so negatively?
1: Well, you know, there have always been uh, criticisms of, of of rich people. Uh, it, it's been associated with, with with religion very often, with it with the idea that that the riches of this world are uh, you know. A transitory and there are more important things and that's that's true enough uh, you know our families our friends our our, our, our private lives uh, and so on are, are, are much more important than possessions uh, but nevertheless uh, the uh, acquiring possessions and creating um, um, goods and services uh, which benefit society is a very positive thing and you know people need some kind of balance in this That, that, that Yes, uh, we, we, we may need uh, some redistribution to help people who are genuinely uh, distressed or, in, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are social problems which need uh, assistance and so forth. But that's a very different thing from saying inequality in itself is a bad thing. Inequality necessarily arises in any kind of complex society. I mean, if you take something like wealth, which Oxfam loves to focus on, uh, wealth is obviously associated with something as simple as age, something as human as age. You know, when, when I started out, uh, you, know, as a, a, you know, my first work after university, I had no wealth at all, you know. It's me right now. <laughs> uh, well, exactly. Of course it is. But, uh, you know, uh, realistically, over time, your wealth will accumulate. Uh, you, you will be richer uh, than, than the, your equivalent in 30 years' time. And and this is a a natural process. Uh, Inequality can perhaps go too far, but the the inequality itself is not a bad thing. It's a necessary consequence of the way in which we live our lives.
0: I suppose inequality is is a, a, a sort of prerequisite to the fact that individuals live different lives and behave in different ways and within a market economy will be trading in different ways and, and, and also interacting with one another, cooperating with one another in different ways. Inequality itself, I, I suppose, is a is evidence of individuality in some ways. Um, what's interesting to me about this sort of framing of, of, of economics as sort of um, this focus on inequality, it doesn't necessarily talk about the fact that, for example, since so the 1990s there are a, a billion or so less people living in below the poverty line than, than in the 1990s compared to now. But of course, the Oxenham report doesn't highlight this fact at all, and instead focuses on the fact that the wealthiest are getting wealthier, rather than the fact that at the same time there are significantly less people living in poverty now than there were, say, thirty years ago.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, there is there has been a tendency uh, on the on the left, but also you know, in mainstream sociology and economics to to um, confuse poverty and inequality, mm. uh, and indeed our, our measure, our, our official measures of uh, poverty are uh, actually measures of inequality, and this is very interesting because the way, when people first got interested in, in looking at poverty systematically in the late 19th century, uh, people like Booth, people like Seabon Roundtree, um, they focused on, on, on minimum standards which were necessary. Uh, Seaborn Roushey went around York in the early, early first decade of the 20th century, knocking on doors, noting down what sort of lifestyle people have. And he, he drew up uh, a kind of uh, measure of poverty based on what was necessary to lead a, a, you know, a reasonable a, a subsistence life, mm-hmm. actually. Um, by, uh, later in his career, uh, by 1950, um, that type of poverty virtually vanished from York. And in the 50s and 60s, sociologists turned their attention to uh, relative poverty. And the idea was that poverty is no longer a thing about not having enough to eat, heating, to eat, light, all that kind of stuff. It was now about how you related to the rest of the society. And so uh, the poverty line became things like 60% of median household income. If you fell below that, you were poor even though by historic standards or by standards comparing you with the rest of the world, then you were living the life of Riley, right? Um, but so the, the, whole, uh, the whole story had changed about that. And this is, I mean, this is, this is true in, in, in Oxfam as well. And what, what, is, what concerns me is that Oxfam really is concerned with the old type of poverty. There's a lot of people in countries which Oxfam deals with who are really in that, you know, pre Seabone and Roundtree type yeah. definition of poverty. Uh, and yet the focus of a lot of this stuff, which Oxfam runs, is, uh, is actually about inequality. It's nothing to do with this, this, this poverty level.
0: I think it's, it's interesting because there's a, the demonization of wealthy people some blaming global capitalism, blaming um, large corporations, blaming wealthy, successful business people that have contributed, created value and people have seen value in that and that's why they've created this wealth, demonising those people and blaming them for global poverty, blaming them for people living below that poverty line. And I think, I I mean, I I suppose my question is why is, why is that shift towards those people, rather than focusing on actually what creates wealth in the first place, and that is cooperation and free trade.
1: Yeah, well, the the, the rich are, are out there, we can see them, you know, the, the gossip columns and, and so <laughs> forth, uh, Twitter's full of this stuff, right? The masks of the world. Exactly, you know, these people are, are prominent, and they're often silly people, uh, they're, they're often uh, self-obsessed, narcissistic people. <laughs> They're easy to dislike, no. uh, but that you know they are the flotsam and jetsam of of, of of the market process. There are people who end up who you think you wouldn't really want to give the time of day to who, who are very rich. But that's not the point. The, the point is that the system uh, which generates wealth benefits all of us. And when we start to 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 uh, you know pick, pull it down, I mean some of the measures which have been proposed. Uh, by Oxfam in this latest paper. I right. uh, uh, quite frankly laughable. Um, they would actually wreck any economy where they're impl- uh, uh, but of course Oxfam's playing safe here because no go- no government in isolation could actually bring in these things. So you'd you'd have to have a world government or something mm. to impose a minimum level of tax and, and it's all awesome. this.
0: And they are they are actually calling for that. I mean let's talk about those specific recommendations. They've said a sixty percent tax on income from stock shares, rent, and other revenue that the rich disproportionately rely on.
1: A global. Well, actually, we tax. we often rely on you know for our pension funds and things mm. like this. This is you know it, 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 it's company shares and and other financial assets which uh, generate the pensions, which which many of us. Uh, Enjoy.
0: So effectively, I mean, a sixty percent tax. What effect would that have on on those pension funds, on those investment portfolios? Well, it it would mean in order
1: to for 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 you, uh, Reem. I I mean, think about it. You will be old sometime. I'm sure you you don't (laughs) think about it, but it it creeps up on you very quickly, (laughs) And, and you do need to save. You do need you do do need a pension. And clearly, if 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 um, uh, financial assets are being taxed at such a, a very high rate like that, it would mean you would have to save vastly more in order to generate a comfortable living standard in retirement. You know, um, you, you think you've got it harsh now, but, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the amount you'd have to save in order to generate a, a reasonable living standard would, would shoot through the roof.
0: And I suppose their argument would be, well, that 60% tax will go towards... Uh, positive amounts of public spending. But again, I mean, this is where the, the, there is the lack of accountability. It's effectively saying that we, we must trust governments to handle our money better than we can handle it ourselves. And when we're taxing these assets at such high levels, I mean, if, if, if this sort of, I mean, if, I think even Corbyn would, would uh, sort of uh, cringe at some of these proposals, looking at the, you know, these kind of huge amounts of taxes that would actually discourage investment and discourage wealth creation but it's about trusting with we must trust governments to to handle that money for us
1: they 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 call for nationalization of of uh, a whole range of of businesses
0: energy Um, transport health education yeah yeah and the, the this trust that governments can somehow handle things better than we can but
1: you know Oxfam's own uh existence rather um, provides a a, a a critique of that of that view. I mean that somewhere in there they also say that um, that they should cut government should cut out outsourcing right outsourcing to the private sector. and yet you know about a third to a, to a third to 40 percent of Oxfam's income comes <laughs> precisely from government outsourcing. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing things for the government, which they get—they get a big chunk of their income from, um, because the government can't do it for itself. You know, and, and this is a thing which uh, so many people on the left have had this blind faith in government, when we know day in, day out the post office scandal. You know, all this sort of stuff hits us every day. Governments can't do things very well. Uh, they need to focus on what they can do and what they have to do, like defence. And you know, basic support of uh, welfare support and so forth, rather than this whole range of things which Oxfam want to uh, see it doing.
0: And I suppose that's not to say that businesses don't make mistakes, but the difference sure, yeah. difference is that we're forced to give our money to governments, whereas we can voluntarily stop giving our money to private businesses. And I also just want to talk about this idea behind a global minimum corporation tax of at least twenty five percent. So, I mean, in the UK, we, we've increased corporation tax 25% at the, uh, not the last budget, I think the budget before, and um, again, increasing it from 19% meant that it was driving out investment, especially when you've got Ireland next door, who have a, a 12.5% corporation tax rate, half of what we have. It means that companies like AstraZeneca have left the UK um, uh, for some of their investment projects. I think it was a something like a 450 million pound investment project. That they moved to Ireland purely due to that corporation tax rate increase. So, what would happen if we suddenly said, "Okay, a quarter of all, um, we we must have twenty five percent corporation tax rate across the world"? Where, where would they go? What would happen? What would that, what, what effect would that have on investment? Well,
1: of course, the uh, the a whole bunch of countries have signed up to a minimum of fifteen percent corporation mm. tax, uh, something which I think was was foolish.
0: And they've now increased that recommendation to 25%. Well, good
1: thing. The, the thing is that, that people, uh, non-economists, have no understanding of corporation tax. They think it's paid in some mysterious way by business. <laughs> it's not. It's paid by individuals. And it falls, it falls partly on shareholders. People are right to point that out. But econometric work on this uh, suggests that a very large part of it uh, actually falls on uh, consumers through higher prices. And uh, perhaps something people don't understand at all—it falls on workers. And there is because uh, if you, you know, if if uh, uh, the 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 uh, am- amount you can get after tax is is reduced, you've got to cut costs somewhere, and the co- where you cut costs falls on pay more often than not. And this has led actually economists like Joseph Stiglitz, who's uh, impeccably left-wing <laughs> economist, right? Nobel Prize winner. Interesting guy. I don't agree with him on most things, but he is absolutely right on this. He thinks corporation tax should be abolished because it does not do what it says on the tin. It doesn't tax the people who he wants to the, t- the tax falls on, on, on smaller people. The workers and the uh, on consumers. workers and the consumers.
0: I think that's really interesting. The way that you know the, the, the framing of corporation tax itself, saying that actually we're going to tax all corporations at twenty five percent, but the impact of that on 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 consumers and workers aren't, aren't highlighted well, at all. It is. I mean, it's a relatively simplistic. and I mean, there are, there are other recommendations that we don't have to go into, but it's a relatively simplistic sort of perspective. It's effectively also effectively said in this report. Inequality has increased because richer people are getting richer. And so what we need to do is take away all of their money, but they want governments to do that. They want governments to take away that that financial, those financial assets from those people and they want to redistribute it. The impact, but I, I don't think necessarily the, the, the concept that actually, if you were to tax those people even more, if you were to tax corporations more, there would be less wealth to redistribute it in, in itself. I mean, why, isn't, why, why can't they see that? Why isn't this kind of perspective um, sort of shown?
1: Economics is a very difficult subject to understand. It's a, it's a remarkably easy subject in many ways, um, but it requires common sense, and common sense is anything but common, uh, particularly amongst people who've got to be in their bonnet about, uh, you know, the, 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 the world is not the way we would like it to be. Um, It's very easy to to go for these simplistic solutions. I think it's terrible that an organization of the size of Oxfam and the reputation of Oxfam doesn't have some decent economists in there and it doesn't have a leadership which understands business, understands economics. It may well have experts in digging wells or or other useful uh, functions like that, but it doesn't seem to have anybody with an ounce of common sense uh, to talk about the economy and to talk about the role of business in the economy.
0: I think that's interesting. I just want to read um, a quote from the um, Oxfam's International Interim Executive Director uh, who said that governments must intervene to break up monopolies, empower workers, tax these massive corporate profits, and crucially, invest in a new era of public goods and services. Now the reason why I highlight this quote is because this they, they talk in the report they talk about um, monopolies and they talk about the the role of big tech or mm. big farmer or big everything I think is uh, is is the quote from the from the report itself. Um, th- this idea behind rent seeking isn't necessarily highlighted, and actually, I think what's interesting is it talks about the fact that all these corporations have all this power, and yet they want to give. Government more power to, to then allow those corporations to lobby for special privileges. So why isn't the this, this concept of rent seeking ever really discussed in these conversations about the role of government?
1: Well, that requires a, 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 a slightly more sophisticated economic understanding that, that, and clearly is manifested in 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 Oxfam's successive reports. Um, yeah, I mean, there are problems with, with large organisations and monopoly power and so forth, um, but I, I think they can be exaggerated. It's certainly true that at any particular time uh, there will be um, organisations, corporations, which dominate a particular market. But if you look over time, 10, 20 years, um, what you get is technological change which undermines monopolies and, uh, and uh, one of the problems with governments interfering to try to deal with monopolies is they may actually protect, it sounds bizarre, but by regulating something, you actually set up barriers to entry for new organisations which might come in and do things more cheaply, more effectively. It's more
0: difficult for them income. to, I suppose, absorb those regulatory costs. If you're, if you're, for example, take like, I don't know, digital market regulation yeah. and you know you've got these these large, you know, big corporations that have huge monopoly power, and if you if you're a little old small small company that wants to enter the market, you've got to face all of these huge regulatory costs. But if you're a larger corporation, you're you're used to it. You've been regulated in that way in the past, and actually absorbing those regulatory costs isn't as much of a burden as it is for little old company that wants to compete with the with the bit with the big guys. <laughs> So I think it's interesting with um, you know, this concept of regulation. Could you tell me a bit about why those regulations actually mean that those companies can't enter the market? You'll find it difficult, those barriers to entry. We're
1: get, perhaps getting a little off track here. But uh, yes, uh, well, regulation, uh, it, it, it's, it's a burden on businesses, but incumbent businesses have to take it on board. They incur the, the costs of, 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 of doing this. And new entrants, of course, will also have to acquire the costs. Now, we often hear arguments for deregulation, and you might think that the, every firm would want to go for deregulation. Right. But this isn't the case. If you're an incumbent and you've already internalized the costs of regulation, then this is just the cost like any other business cost. And, uh, y- you know, if you then deregulate, you're letting in competition, so often the, the defenders of regulation are actually incumbent firms. Um, this doesn't mean that regulation is a good thing. It means that you've got to look very carefully at who is making the argument.
0: It's interesting. It's, and it's the irony behind uh, this report. One of the recommendations is further regulation of yeah. These, these, yeah. these large uh, monopolistic companies. But actually, in, in many ways, those, those regulations actually would, may protect their monopolistic power. And so I think, finally, I just want to touch on this idea behind, you know, the way in which Oxfam spoken about government regulation and government intervention itself, so, you know, the the uh, in- International Interim Executive Director said governments must intervene, you know, would you say that if Oxfam were to work with business instead or work work alongside business, work to promote business, work to promote entrepreneurship, that would have a more positive impact on what they want to solve, which which is global poverty?
1: I think certainly the, the working with business would uh, would provide a different source of income, it would make them less dependent on lobbying the state, which is what they devote quite a lot of resource to doing, not just Oxfam but many other charities. Um, it, it would have a more direct connection uh, with, with people rather than with, with governments, I think is something which they should pursue.
0: Absolutely. I have to say I agree with you, Len. Len, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss Oxfam report. And thank you all for watching and listening. If you enjoyed this video or you would like to listen on the IEA's podcast, you can have a look and listen on your chosen podcast app. And if you enjoyed and you're watching on the YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button, like and comment so you can enjoy more of our videos. Thank you.